0: In this episode, we're covering three more influential Christian Zionists to end our mini series on the Christian Zionist movement of the late 1800s. We're going to return to this when we get to the early 1900s and the rebirth of Israel. In the meantime, here are some more Christians who were influential in the Zionist movement. Welcome back to our Church History Podcast. I'm your host, Laura Lee Siemens. This is our final episode of the Christian Zionists of the 1800s. I could tell you many more stories, but like all the mini-series I've told, if we stay in the series too long, it would end up being a whole season and just get off topic. Let's quickly recap what we've discussed in this series' last episodes. In our first episode, The Jews and the Church... We went over the history of the Jews and the church, and also how Israel was given the name Palestine. You can go back and listen to that information. But a reminder, Palestine is a Greek name Romans gave to a Jewish land as a way to humiliate them after they defeated them in 2 back-to-back rebellions, where the Jewish people were trying to free themselves from Roman rule. Remember, the Arab language used by people in that area today do not have the P sound or letter in their language, so they can't even say Palestine or write Palestine in their Arab language. Also, the Palestinian flag was blue and white with a yellow star. The Palestinian flag we see today was invented in the 1960s and was never associated with any country. In our next episode, Mark Twain and the Valley of Dry Bones, we looked at the life of Mark Twain, who was struggling with his faith, and was able to visit the Holy Land. He expected to see what we read about in the Old Testament, but instead found a valley of dry bones. This pushed Mark Twain even farther away from the Gospel, and he never became a Christian. He wrote a humorous book about his travels to the Holy Land, which made him famous, allowing him to write the books we know him for today. I'm going to talk more about his story at the end of today's episode. In our episode, Schofield, the Cyrus of the Zionist Movement, we talked about the controversial life of Cyrus Schofield and his commentary on the Bible that led many Christians to believe the Jews would return to Israel before the return of Christ. In that Spafford family shares God's peace with the world, we looked at the life of the Spafford family, famous for their song, It Is Well With My Soul, and their call to work with the Jewish people in Israel. We looked at the work they did with both the Jewish and Arab people, the effects of World War I, and the day Britain took control of the land from the Ottoman Empire. Last week, we looked at Lord Shaftesbury, the boy, survived an aristotic yet abusive childhood, and then made it his passion to promote Zionism in Britain, his call to make Palestine a British colony run by Jewish people, giving the Jewish people control over the land. And now today we're looking at three men, George Goller, Moses Montefiore, and Charles Churchill. If you're new to this podcast, we're covering the story of the church in chronological order. We started with the life of Christ, and we're now in the late 1800s, on our journey through time. It's not surprising that since our series on Zionism has come at a time when the topic is a hot-button item, I have received many messages. And at the end of this episode, I'm going to answer the most common questions I've been sent about the Christian Zionist movement. But first, let's look at our three stories. The first story we're going to look at is Colonel George Goller. In 1796, George Gawler was born in the quiet hamlet of South Sea England. No one thought anything of a little boy born in this tiny little hamlet. Little did the world know that this unassuming birth would set in motion a life marked with military exploits, governance in far off lands, and an unexpected dedication to a cause that transcended all the borders of the world. There's not much written about George's early life. We can assume it was just a simple little life in a hamlet in England. But in the early 19th century, young George's life took a turn. In 1813, he enlisted in the British Army. George was a great soldier, and his skills on the battlefield during the famous Battle of Waterloo in 1815 catapulted him into senior command. After the war, George continued to climb in the British military. He was very well respected and was given important posts. Soon, he was getting posts outside of the military. In 1828, He assumed the role of Governor of South Australia, and in this new role, he showed his leadership skills, and the respect for George continued to grow. Thirteen years later, George's life took another turn when he returned to England in 1841. In England, he became passionate about the Restoration Movement, known today as the Zionist Movement. There are two reasons he became passionate about this movement. First, he loved God, and he loved reading the Bible. And when he was reading the Bible, he saw the Jewish people were the rightful people to live in the land of Israel. Secondly, there was a political viewpoint. He saw the nation of Israel ruled by Jewish people as a country that could spread Western values throughout the Middle East. George became an advocate for the Jewish people who were already living in the area known at the time as Palestine. George also wanted to create a pathway for the West to have peace with Egypt and Syria, and he thought a way for that to happen would be to have the land of Israel established, with a colony run by Jewish people. George had a very close friend named Sir Moses Montefiore. He was a British Jew who worked with George. They wanted to establish a settlement in the Holy Land, were Jewish people who wanted to return to the Promised Land. The two men finally saw their vision come true in 1845. A British settlement was created in Jaffa and it was ruled completely by Jewish people. Jaffa is Hebrew for beautiful and it did not take long for Jaffa to be restored to a beautiful place to live. Jaffa is first mentioned in the Bible in the book of Joshua when the Israelites were taking back the promised land. The tribe of Dan was given Jaffa. However, it was not until King David that Jaffa was officially under the control of Israel. When King Solomon built the temple, he used the cedar logs from Jaffa. Jonah was from Jaffa, and it was this port that he boarded for his fateful trip. Peter preached in Jaffa, and it was in Jaffa that we have the story of Tabitha, called Dorcas. In Jaffa, Peter had his vision from God that led him to preach to Cornelius and later many Gentiles who became part of the church. So it was this beautiful place of Jaffa that George and Moses created the settlement. Remember, Mark Twain described this land as sad and lonely and a valley of dry bones. George and Moses were excited to see beautiful orange groves planted in the land and the dry bones and the desert began to transform. The orange groves grew, and Jaffa became a beautiful place to live. The desert land became beautiful orange groves you can still visit today. You can go and walk among the orange groves planted by George and Moses, two men who had a dream to see Israel reborn. In 1851, George wrote a pamphlet titled, The Repopulation of Palestine. It was a testament to his unwavering commitment to the cause. Despite retiring from active public service in 1852, George's influence continued and he left an indelible mark on the narrative of the Jewish resettlement. George Goller died in 1869. For story number two, we're going to look a little closer at the life of Moses Montefiore. Moses and George had worked side by side to create the settlement in Jaffa. But what was Moses' story? In the coastal town of Livorno, Italy in 1784, a Jewish baby named Moses was born. Life was not easy for Jewish people in Italy. The papal states, which included Rome and parts of central Italy, often imposed restrictive measures on Jewish population. According to a papal decree, Jews were required to live in segregated areas known as ghettos. They had to wear distinctive clothing and adhere to curfews. These shaped the daily lives of Jews in this region. Despite these challenges, Jewish communities thrived culturally and economically, even within the confines of the ghettos. However, Moses was born in the coastal town of Liverno, and in the 1780s, this city had a significant Jewish population. This city had a long history of being relatively tolerant and open for Jewish residents, especially compared to other parts of Italy and Europe. The Medici family who ruled over Tuscany, including Livorno, encouraged Jewish settlement in the city in the 16th century. This attracted merchants, traders, and many skilled professionals. Way back in the year 2020, I did an episode on the Borgia family who were big rivals of the Medici family. You can go back and listen to that episode. It's one of the craziest stories you'll ever hear. Now, while this little city offered a more tolerant environment, there were still many legal restrictions in place for Jewish people. The Jews were required to live in designated Jewish quarters. There was limitations on their activities. However, compared to the rest of Europe, this little town was a favorable setting for Jewish life. And that is how little Moses grew up. At the age of 21, in 1805, Moses left the small little coastal town in Italy and he went to England. The bustling streets of London became his new home, and by 1812, he was proud to become a naturalized British citizen. At the age of 40, in 1824, Moses and his brother co founded the investment bank they named the Montefiore Brothers. The two Jewish brothers did well, and soon they were well-known, respected, wealthy bankers in England, a long way from being forced to live in the Jewish quarters of a small coastal town in Italy. Everyone so respected Moses that at the age of 53, he was appointed the sheriff of London. He was the first Jewish person to ever hold this office. Throughout his life, Moses wanted to help other Jewish people. Throughout Europe and Middle Eastern countries that had large Jewish communities, the laws held Jews as second class citizens. He dreamed of the Jewish people having a place they could call home, where they didn't face discrimination and could live their lives in peace. He felt that with his money and respect that he held in England, which was the world power at the time, he could help. In 1840, he went on a diplomatic mission to Morocco. There, he advocated for Jewish rights. People told him this was really unwise. He was in a different country. He was told, to condemn the politics of another country, especially when it comes to the treatment of Jewish people, that is not wise. But Moses was unafraid to speak truth to power. And he defended his community. In 1841, Queen Victoria bestowed upon him the honor of knighthood, and he became Sir Moses Montefiore a title that resonated with dignity and achievement. This was when Sir Moses began working with his friend and politician, George, to create the Jewish settlement in Israel. In 1846, Moses traveled to Damascus. This was a city embroiled in the persecution of Jewish people. Moses saw his people being treated unfairly and harshly, especially by the Christians in Damascus. He wanted to intervene and protect those facing injustice. This trip pushed him, and when he returned, he knew that his mission with his friend George had to succeed, and they began to start their Jewish settlement. In 1855, he was recognized with a second knighthood. When Moses retired from active business in 1864, He continued his work in the Zionist movement. Imagine it's the year 1872. You are in England, and there is a celebration. All of England has taken a day to celebrate something. It's a party. The city is celebrating the birthday of a man everybody loves. It's the 90th birthday of Sir Moses Montefiore, the Jewish banker, the sheriff of London, a man loved by the people. And that really happened in 1872. All of England held a giant party for Sir Moses Montefiore when he turned 90. At the age of 103, Sir Moses passed away, leaving behind a legacy of fighting for the rights of Jewish people, financial understanding, and a commitment to justice. His life was one of resilience, but also compassion. His life stood as a testament to the power one person can have to shape the course of history. The third man we want to look at is Charles Henry Churchill. Charles Henry Churchill was born in 1814, and we don't know very much about his childhood at all. However, at the age of 26 in 1840, Churchill began serving in the British military. He was an officer stationed in Damascus. While in Damascus, he became part of the Christian Zionist movement. However, it was not the Christian Zionists that persuaded him to their cause, but instead it was the hateful anti-Zionist movement in the Damascus church that persuaded him. While he was stationed in Damascus, Charles Churchill met Christian groups that were anti-Zionists. He really didn't know anything about the idea of Zionism at the time, so he listened to their arguments. he heard the arguments against the Zionist movement, he could see clearly that what he was hearing had nothing to do with the Zionist movement, but it was just clearly Jewish hatred. The church was preaching Jewish hatred but covering it with Christian language. These men were using this Christian language to cover up their hatred for Jewish people, and they were doing it from the pulpits. These anti-Zionists made Charles look closer at the Zionist movement, and he became involved in the movement. Charles saw the rebirth of Israel as both a religious and a political necessity. The anti-Zionists were spreading lies about the Jewish people. These lies are known today as the blood libel. They were lies claiming the Jews held blood rituals, were satanic, drank the blood of children. They could not convince Charles of any of these lies, For one reason, Charles had gotten to know the Jewish community in Damascus and was friends with them. Because Charles actually took the time to get to know the Jewish community, he knew the blood libels were false. He spoke with courage, refusing to be quiet. Anytime and anywhere he heard Jewish bigotry, he would stop. And he would stop people from speaking the lies they were speaking. And he would stand for the Jewish people. He was most passionate about this in the church community, reminding them that they could not worship God, who called himself the God of Israel, while hating the people of Israel. Charles learned of a Jewish man in England who had become well-respected, named Sir Moses Montefiore. He began to write to him. He told Moses what he was seeing in Damascus, and why the Jewish people had to have a safe place to live and call their own, They needed to have the ancient land of Israel established. He wrote all over Europe, asking people to make this a priority. But it was Moses who traveled to Damascus to see firsthand what Charles was talking about. And it was that trip and his time with Charles that led Moses to push for the settlement in Jaffa. In 1853, Charles Churchill, who was still living in the Middle East, published the book Mount Lebanon. In this book, he predicted the future of Palestine. He called for the land to be taken from the Ottoman Empire and either become an English settlement or be given to the Jewish people as an independent state. Others were inspired by the work of Charles Churchill, including the man Charles Warren. In 1875, Charles Warren, who was a prominent British general and archaeologist known for his work in Jerusalem, contributed to the discussion on Jewish resettlement He wrote a book, The Land of Promise. He proposed the intentional introduction of Jews into the region, setting the stage for demographic and political shifts. It was in 1880 that a man named Lawrence, a British Protestant with a deep commitment to Jewish restoration, published the book The Land of Gilead, suggesting that there should be a Jewish resettlement under Turkish sovereignty and British protection east of the Jordan. His strategic vision anticipated the region's agricultural potential and economic opportunities, including developing the Red Sea's resources. Charles Henry Churchill's life, especially his time living in the Middle East and his work in the Zionist movement, reflected a man whose convictions and actions left an imprint on the historical canvas. From his time in Damascus, to his diplomatic correspondences, Charles' life was one of military service, diplomacy, but most important, the pursuit of justice and restoration of Israel. Today, just like George Gawler, Moses Montefiore, and Charles Churchill, we as Christians have to defend the lies being spread about the Jewish people. To be honest, I've been shocked at the amount of Jew hatred and lies that people seem open about. And once again, in the churches, Jew hatred's been covered up with Christian language. Here are a few of the answers for things people have written me about since I started this mini-series. First, I've heard from many people that as Christians, they don't appreciate being told that they hate Jewish people. Because they don't hate Jewish people, they only hate the nation of Israel. And that if the nation of Israel had not been reborn, There'd be no violence in the Middle East, or any hatred towards the Jewish people. And here's the truth. In 1929, the Arabs in Hebron, they went out and they had this huge murderous program, trying to kill as many Jews as possible. In fact, in just one day, they killed 67 Jews. They hacked them to death and they mutilated their bodies. This was before Israel was reborn. Between 1936 and 1939, 510 Jewish men, women, and children were slaughtered by Arabs all across the land that at the time was known as Palestine. Jews were murdered in Iraq, Russia, Ukraine, Berlin, and of course all over Europe and throughout the Middle East for 1,500 years. All during the time other countries were controlling the land of Israel. Here's the truth. Satan hates Israel, and he plants the hatred of the Jewish people into any heart open to that hate. God, the Father, calls himself the God of Israel, and Jesus calls the church his bride. So if Satan can get the bride of Christ to spread hate against the people of Israel, that is a win-win for Satan. And as Christians, we cannot allow Satan to spread his hate through the church. Here are some other things I've heard from people. God doesn't care for one nation more than another. He doesn't love one group of people and he's not a real estate broker. So the question, does God care about a certain people group in a certain part of the land? Does God care about real estate? Well, let's look in the Bible. Jeremiah chapter 16 verses 14 to 15. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. That it shall no more be said, The Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of Egypt, but The Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north and from the lands where He had driven them. I will bring them back into the land I gave to their fathers. Throughout all of the Bible, including the New and Old Testament, we read about God's plan and love for the nation of Israel. For people who think this statement, makes God a real estate broker? My answer is no, God is not a real estate broker. God is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He holds the universe in his hands. In Job, we read that God controls the seas and keeps them within their boundaries. And if you want to see what that looks like, Google the line where the Pacific and Atlantic oceans meet. This God created the universe and has absolute authority over all of it. We are his creation. So if God wants to draw the lines, create the borders of one country, and place a people he called his people, he has an absolute authority to do that. Only the king of kings, lord of lords, has that authority. No, he's not a real estate broker. The next thing people have written and told me is that the Jewish people rejected Jesus, so they lost their right to the land of Israel. Once again, let's read in the Bible. Ezekiel chapter 36, and we're going to start at verse 16. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, when the house of Israel dwelt in their land, they defiled it by their ways and deeds to me. Their way was like the uncleanness of a woman in her customary impurity. Therefore, I poured out my fury on them, for the blood they had shed on the land, and for the idols with which they had defiled it. So I scattered them among the nations, dispersed them throughout the countries. I judged them according to their ways and deeds. So in these verses, we see that God allowed the Jewish people to be dispersed and sent to every country, and it was because of their actions. But here's the question was bringing them back to the land dependent on the Jewish people accepting Jesus as their Messiah? Let's continue to read. When they came to the nations, wherever they went, they profaned my holy name. When they said of them, These are the people of the Lord, and yet they have gone out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations wherever they went. So we see here that the Jewish people being scattered over the earth profaned God's holy name. Because people would say, what kind of a God would treat his people this way? The Jews are God's people. They don't even have land. And that is exactly what Mark Twain said when he visited the Holy Land and saw it as a desert full of dry bones, a desolate place. He said, God can't be real. And he can't be trusted if his own people are left like this. But let's keep reading from this chapter. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. And I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations. Which you have profaned in their midst. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. For I will take you from the nations, gather you out of all the countries, and bring you into your land. Here we see why God brought the Jewish people back to their land and used, among others, Christian men to do this because this miracle brought glory to God. Later in the chapter, this miracle is described even more. And I will multiply the fruit of your trees and the increase of your fields, so you never need again bear the reproach of famine among the nations. And that's something we have seen. As the Jews began to return to their homeland, the fields, the vineyards, the orange groves, the olives, and many other things have returned to the land. And then as the chapter ends, God reminds them again, this is to bring glory to him. Not for your sake I do this, says the Lord God. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, on the day that I cleanse you from all iniquities, I will also enable you to dwell in the cities and the ruins shall be rebuilt. The desolate land shall be tilled instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass by. So they will say, The desolate land has become like the Garden of Eden, and the wasted, desolate, and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. The nations left around you shall know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruined places and planted what was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken to it and will do it. We can see from Ezekiel chapter 36, That the rebirth of Israel was not dependent on the actions, the faith, or the virtue of the Jewish people. The rebirth of Israel was to bring glory to God. And everything prophesied came true. The land Mark Twain wrote about is no longer the land you will see. The land you see today is the most beautiful land on planet Earth. If Mark Twain could visit today, he would see a very different picture. He would see the dry bones have come back to life. Another thing people have written in to tell me is that God doesn't have to fulfill his promises to Israel. In Psalm chapter 105, verse 8 to 11, we read, He remembers his covenant forever. The word which he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac and confirmed it to Jacob for a statue to Israel is an everlasting covenant. Saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan as your allotment of your inheritance. The nation of Israel is coming back to life, and God placed this passion into the hearts of church men and women, reminding us that God keeps his promises even when it seems impossible. And another one that people have written in to try to explain to me how all of this works is replacement theology. And this is the teaching that says the Gentile church replaced the nation-state of Israel and the people of Israel, and his eternal promises to the Jewish people now belong to the Gentile church. Remember, Jesus is a Jew, and I say is, not was, because Jesus is alive today and described in the book of Revelation as the Lion of Judah. When Jesus, the Lion of Judah, returns, It doesn't say in the Bible he's going to set his foot down here in Canada, where I live, or in America, or in England, or in any Arab country. He's returning and putting his foot down in Jerusalem, the capital of the Jewish nation. The Bible, including the New Testament, was written almost entirely by Jewish men. The early church was Jewish and was seen actually as a sect of Judaism. God does have a great plan for the church. We are his bride, and he is using the church to bring glory to God and spread his message of salvation worldwide. And there are promises made to the church that were never made to the Jewish people. And we see that Jesus fulfilled many of the symbolisms that are part of the Jewish religion. All of that is true. And it's also true that God has a plan for the Jewish nation. That involves a country with borders, laws, and government that has nothing to do with the church. Here's the thing. God can have two plans for two different groups and run them simultaneously. The only time these cross is when Jewish people come to Christ and become Messianic Jews. And those people have the double blessing and double promises of both the nation of Israel and the church. Let's also remember that Paul was very clear in Romans chapter 10 when Paul talked about the Gentile church being grafted into God's plan and the salvation message is laid out clearly and Paul talks with the Jewish people rejecting Jesus. And then in chapter 11 he says, Does this mean God's done with Israel? Of course not. Here it is, I'll read it to you. I ask then, has God rejected his people, the nation of Israel? Of course not. I am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, and a member of the true tribe of Benjamin. We see the promise to bring Jewish people back to the land of Israel in the book of Ezekiel, in Jeremiah, in Isaiah, in Joel, in Zechariah, and even more. Throughout the Bible, God says his love for Israel is a forever love, an everlasting love. His love for Israel is not dependent on the behavior of the Jewish people. His love is unconditional. And his promises are unconditional. I could continue reading Bible passages to you for hours. We as Christians must reject the hate filled messages that have unfortunately found themselves in the church in every era of church history. Eventually, in this series, we're gonna make it to World War II, and you will see that some of these teachings, especially the teaching of replacement theology, led to the genocide of the Jewish people. But we're a long way away from that and we'll get to it eventually. In our next episode, we leave the 1800s Zionist movement and we'll kind of put a pause on the Zionist series until we reach the 1900s. So return next week so you can hear my next episode. In the meantime, you can always go to my website, loraleesiemens.com and check out more.